Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So 2004 was a great year, not just because I had finally finished with high school and was on to my real life, but because the greatest comedy movie of all time was released. Perhaps my attachment to it is that I had just recently graduated from high school myself when I first watched it, but something inside of me just melts into the beauty That is, the cult classic, Mean Girls. (laughs) Have you ever seen Mean Girls? Well, if you haven't, it's 20 years old, and I'm going to ruin it for you. So let me just fill you in on the plot really quick of Mean Girls. You could probably figure out a little bit of it just by the name. They didn't, you practice any deception here. But the main character, uh, a girl named Katie, who's played by the lovely Lindsay Lohan, is a new student in her high school. Now, she's just moved back from like a year, uh, a life of living in South Africa. And what she finds out is that things are very, very different here in American high schools than anywhere else that she's thus far been in life. But mostly, what she realizes really quickly is that the school is run by a group of stuck-up girls called the Plastics. And they have a leader named Regina George. And so Katie befriends two outcasts of the school, and they begin to plot to bring down Regina and her band of mean girls. So over the course of the film, Regina's reign of terror begins to crumble, as does the general culture and status quo amongst females in the school. And so in an effort to bring about reconciliation of these young ladies, a teacher sets up a bit of a public forum for the girls of the school to gather together and just air their feelings and their secrets. And so in the midst of that scene, a very, very, very strange girl starts saying some really weird stuff about a world that she envisions where everyone gets along. And from the back, someone yells, She doesn't even go here. Turns out the girl isn't even a student of the school. But this quote encapsulates the main theme of the entire movie because it's a story about how outsiders make their way into the mainstream social fabric of the school and create a major culture shift and reconciliation that makes the school a more hospitable place for all of its students to experience. And this is a strange yet applicable part of the good news of Advent. We celebrate that the established order has, and will again, come face to face 
with the God of the universe at some point. And because of that, the world will be transformed to become a more hospitable place for all people. And that work actually started to become real and evident a long time before Jesus actually entered the scene. So we're in the middle of, uh, like, actually the very middle, like there's five sermons and this is number three, right? Right in the very middle of a sermon series called Bad Company, where we are looking at the women who are mentioned in Jesus's family tree and seeing how these five outsiders and people who would generally be considered bad company at your family get-together have been immortalized, redeemed, and celebrated as members of the family of God. And so we've talked about uh, the deceptive blackmailing widow named Tamar, uh, a prostitute named Rahab, and today we're going to get to one of my very favorite stories in all of the Bible. And so let's just find out who's up next. This is Matthew 1, chapter, uh, verse 5. It says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, you remember her last week, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. It's like one, you didn't have to go very far. Literally one generation. Ruth. Who is Ruth? Well, Ruth, her story comes to us shortly after the conquest of the land of Canaan by Israel. In Israel's history, this is a period of time called the Judges. And Israel is basically just a disorganized confederacy of tribes at this point. There's not a lot of leadership continuity. There's very little religious continuity. You know, who would have thought that the children of the people who couldn't follow God when God was literally leading them by a pillar of cloud and fire in the wilderness would struggle to follow God once they settled into the land? But regardless of that, this is the time period that we find Ruth in. Now, Ruth is from a land called Moab. And there was a famine in Judah. And a man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, fled from Judah to the land of Moab in order to survive. And they end up staying there, and their two sons marry Moabite women, women named Orpah and Ruth. So just know that this is not something that would be celebrated by the Israelites. If the Bible wasn't inspired by God, I doubt that the book of Ruth would exist, and here's why. Earlier in Scripture, in the book of Genesis, shortly after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, there's a really disturbing story about Abraham's nephew, a man named Lot. See, Lot's wife dies as they're fleeing from Sodom, and there's this strange story about how Lot's daughters get their father drunk and have illicit relations with him. And it's explained that the offspring from those relationships are the origin points of two nations, the nation of Ammon and the nation of Moab. So to Israelites, Moabites are the offspring of shame. Not good company not the people that you have around. So back to Ruth's story, what happens next is tragic. Elimelech and both of his sons die, leaving Naomi, their mother, Orpah and Ruth, their wives, widowed. 
So Naomi, seeing no future in Moab any longer, decides that she is going to go back to Judah, to, to Bethlehem, to see if her family there will care for her. And she tells the girls to go home to their own families. Orpah agrees, but Ruth puts up a fight. She insists on going with Naomi back to Bethlehem. So when they arrive, they find a relative of Naomi's husband, a man named Boaz. Boaz gives Ruth permission to harvest barley from his field for free and actually insists that she only harvest from his field. And then he orders his people to protect her, knowing that she is a female in a patriarchal society, and not just a female, but a, a female who is from a despised foreign land. She has no connections, no familial relations to protect her. So Boaz assumes that role for her. Ruth, astounded at this kindness, reacts in this way. This comes from Ruth chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though... I am not one of your servants. So it turns out that just the very presence of Ruth in Israel has caused people to start to talk. She's been noticed because what kind of person leaves their family and their nation to willingly come into a life of poverty in a hostile place? Who is this curious character? Apparently, Everyone in Israel would like to know. So what Boaz does next is he invites her to stay for dinner, to have something to eat, and then she returns home to Naomi, and this interaction occurs. This is picking up in verse 19 through 23. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is better, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, with his young women, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. And so she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So it turns out that Boaz is a relative of Naomi's husband. And this is very, very good news for them because it means that Boaz can play a really important role 
in the future of Ruth and Naomi. So because they are both widows, they have no property rights and no real way of improving their economic or social lifestyle. Remember, we're in like an ancient, familial, patriarchal society. A woman's lifestyle was only as good as the lifestyle of the man that she was attached to, either her father or her husband. And for a widow, that's no lifestyle at all. But a woman could have her life rearranged by a person that we call a kinsman redeemer. They could be brought back into the family through marriage or through the kindness of a family member in their late husband's life. So Boaz, it turns out, is an eligible suitor to be a kinsman redeemer to Naomi and to Ruth, as they are the widow and mother of one of his relatives. So I know that's like kind of like technical, dense stuff, but, but just all you need to really wrap your mind around is that it's pertinent to this story, and by proxy, Jesus' story. Naomi tells Ruth to go back to Boaz while he's at a place called the threshing floor, which is a place where a farmer would sort through and process their crops after harvest. And it's tedious and exhausting work. They always drank there, you know, so they're extra tired. And, and Ruth goes in there and does some good old-fashioned ancient Near Eastern flirting with Boaz. And this is kind of what that looks like. This is jumping ahead to chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. It says, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. And so basically, they can kind of like confess their love for one another. And Boaz is like, listen, I want to marry you, obviously. But I got to like check with my people first to make sure that the guy that's next in line to marry you technically, you know, make sure that he doesn't want to redeem you. So I got I to go check with him. It's kind of strange, but there are rules. There's an established order to these types of things back then. And so it's important to know that Boaz wants to marry Ruth. And the reason that he wants to marry her is that he says he knows of her loyalty. And the word for loyalty in Hebrew is a word that's typically reserved for describing God's love. Israel. What Boaz has seen Ruth live out is the kind of loyal love that only comes from God, a reflection of the God of Israel, Yahweh, in her, the kind of love that caused her to 
leave everything and to follow and care for Naomi. He's seen it in her insistence on getting close to him. An Israelite man, despite the fact that she doesn't really belong in Israel. She's an outsider. She doesn't even go here. But she's got the willingness to go out on a limb in order to make sure that Naomi doesn't have to live her life on the margins. See, Ruth could have just stayed with her family in Moab and enjoyed whatever lifestyle they lived. But Naomi would have been left to go back to Israel to live life and survive on her own. And friends, this is the gospel. This is what the work of, of, of Katie and her friends, a group of outsiders, accomplished in Mean Girls. This is the work that Ruth accomplished as Boaz eventually got permission to marry her and redeem her and Naomi. And this is the work that Jesus reflected in the inclusion of Ruth in his family tree. And it is the work that Jesus continues to complete with every single heart that is touched with the redeeming message of gospel love. This is the work that you and I do every single time that we welcome the stranger, the outsider, the broken down, the beat up, the rough around the edges or whatever people into our family and say to them, I have seen you. Jesus sees you. Come in. Be redeemed. You belong here with us. You are part of this family. You know, if you're hurting or feeling like a stranger in a strange place, this place is a place where you are seen as good company. This is a place where you can belong. This is a place where we love you. And I want you to know that. See, the hardest thing that most people ever do in their lives is leave the comfort of their own type of Moab and grace the doors of a church. They're afraid that the life that they've lived disqualifies them from belonging, that the place that they come from is a place that's looked at by the church as a place of shame. And it's time that we remember Boaz. Boaz saw Ruth for who she is, not as a descendant of those shameful Moabites. Jesus saw people for who they were, not from where they came from. Jesus didn't see people as the sum total of the consequences of their lives. Jesus saw people as family. Jesus sees you as family. And that right there, that's good news. That's the gospel. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you see us, that in the midst of our messes, in the midst of our brokenness, that you don't disqualify us because of where we came from, you don't disqualify us because of where we've been. You know all, and you still look at us, and you see the same thing that you saw back in the very beginning. We are people that are worthy 
of your love. And we are people that are redeemed because of your cross. So God, we just ask that you would remind us as we approach the celebration of the birth of Christ. That you came into a broken, messed up, chaotic world. And you brought light. You brought love. And at the, at the end of your human life, you made a way for us to experience and know that love ourselves. So God, we just invite you to come into this space to fill us with your joy so that we might go out into this world and, and just be beacons of your hope, of your peace, of your love, and of your joy in this most stressful week leading up to the, the craziest day of our year. And so God, we thank you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.